If you asked uh, Dr. Freimeyer, you never put disclaimers in a sermon, but I'm going to put a disclaimer here too. <clears throat> First of all, don't take anything I say as pushing alcohol consumption. Um, some of you struggle with it, and I never want to tempt you. Secondly, I don't like the taste of alcohol. I don't know why they mess up that good juice with that alcohol. Um, and I'm ordained in the teetotaling denomination, so rarely do any of us even touch the stuff. And when I do, my stomach always gets sick. So why would I bother just to be friendly around people that are doing it? And also, my mom died from injuries suffered in a car accident due to a drunk driver, so I have a bit of a hang-up about alcohol. So don't take anything I say as, as pushing it. But don't get hung up on the alcohol and miss the point. Don't let that hang you up. Amen. It's no accident that the religious leaders called Jesus a drunken and a glutton. In this story of Cana and the wedding in Cana, he sets the stage, I think, for all the future bartending work that he did in ministry. He would mostly be hanging out, not in church, doing his ministry. He would spend his life in the third place where people hang out socially. He was setting the stage, and I think that's why John wants us to know that. And even when he was not hosting the party or bringing the wine himself, he would be helping people to tell their stories, to connect their stories to one another, and connect their stories to God's kingdom story. That was his mission, because life is about story. You know the story of Zacchaeus, who immediately threw a party once Jesus got him out of the tree. What did he do? He told his story. He began to confess everything he'd ever committed. And what does he do as a response to that? In the presence of Jesus, it's safe not only to tell your story, to confess and then say, I'll give half of everything I own to the poor. I'll pay back the people I've ripped off four times. That's a pretty good bartender that can get people to do that. And the story of Matt, or Levi, immediately threw a party of all of, with all of his closest tax-collecting friends after Jesus called him to ministry to be a disciple. But Jesus didn't get his drunkard glutton reputation by dropping by a couple of dinner parties at Christmas time. Catch that? He didn't get his drunkard, glutton reputation with the Pharisees by just dropping by a couple of dinner parties at Christmas time. It was so much a lifestyle, so regular for him that everyone knew where to look for him when they were trying to find him. And of course, the church people got upset. That's their job to be cantankerous and obnoxious. Uh, Rick Warren, I heard once say, you know who Rick Warren is. Rick Warren once said that we ministry professionals spend too much time and too much of our energy herding goats rather than tending sheep. Jesus' priority was the sheep. If you grew up like me, you were warned to be careful. You know, they, they had that little song, be careful little hands, what you touch, little eyes, what you see, uh, little feet where you go. You know, the father up above who loves you so much is going to smack you in the head is what's going to happen. No, because of what? You'd lose your testimony. As I once heard, well, several times heard Tom Skinner, the evangelist who's now deceased, say Jesus lost his testimony every day. Jesus lost his testimony every day. The fact is, when Jesus ate and drank with people, the kingdom of God broke out. You hear that? When Jesus ate and drank with people, God's kingdom broke out. <clears throat> and as our bartender model, Jesus spent most of his life where? In the third place. 
doesn't have to be a bar literally, but those natural places where people gather socially. That was the focus of his ministry. He listened to people's stories. He encouraged them to be vulnerable because what? He was safe. He could be trusted. He connected people to one another and then to his story. And then Jesus built a community, and we're part of that continuing story. But so what does all this bartender and story talk have to do with our real ministries? That's where I always want to go. That's my learning preference, at least. If you've had me in class, you know that's true. And you know I'm committed to small groups and to villages and learning theories and all those kind of things. But last Tuesday, and here's a little bit of uh, neuroscience I'm going to share. I don't even know how to spell the word, but that's the word. Last week, I was attending a workshop at Exponential with Alan Hirsch and his team. Some of you know his name. And uh, he was talking about effectively discipling people. And I think that would be an important priority to spend some attention to. One of the teachers, really too smart for her age, impressed me with her neuroscience degree, particularly when she said she was Harvard grad, uh, Harvard grad. And I said, oh, I went to University of Kentucky. I, we play basketball, except we can't, <laughs> except we can't beat Florida. So <laughs> that was depressing. Um, but as she talked, I got so excited, I was jumping up and down inside. I drove Carolyn crazy when I got home. I said, you've got to hear this theory. It's so cool. And she began to unfold for the group, and then she was willing to talk with me afterwards, saying stuff I had no idea what she's talking about, drawing it on a board with a cute chart. And I said, do you have an article that I can read that might make sense to me? But as she began to unfold how our brains learn, I was astonished. And uh, since it was beyond my pay grade, you'll ask, have to ask Dr. Freimeyer, who studied this more than me, or Dr. Sierra, or Dr. Mucherer, the counselors who really know all the intellectual stuff about this, but this is my take on it. First of all, that when we learn facts, they get planted in the front part of our brains. She talked about this being semantic memory. And what it does, it sticks in the front of our brains and can't be used for anything else. We can't translate it into meaning. We don't know what to do with it. Our brains don't know what to do with it. And we can't make application to the future. But when we, and hear this, her word, but when we use testimony, interesting, Jesus lost his testimony. When, G, when we use testimony, she's talking about story, it connects to our episodic memory, which means it connects to our entire brain and even to our body organs. So our entire bodies biologically are learning when we learn through story. Is it any doubt that Jesus might have used story? It's amazing he didn't have a Harvard grad teaching this stuff. So we cannot help but learn when we encounter stories, and then our bodies and our brains automatically apply it to the future and to our future direction. Then she added this point. This kind of story learning cannot happen in isolation. The only way it works is when we tell stories to one another in a community, and then we as pastors and teachers must be primary facilitators of that process. Dare we call it disciple-making? We are wired to be disciple-makers and disciples. We're wired to tell stories in a social setting. You hear small groups. That's the way we're biologically wired, according to a Harvard researcher who has a really cool article and a book coming out on it. Our brains and bodies are wired for learning through stories, not regurgitating facts. So getting the right answer biblically is not the answer. 
We learn through story and applying it in story. And that really encompasses our whole ministry, whatever form that takes, whether it's inside the walls of the church or the seminary or whether it's someplace out in the marketplace. So maybe this bartender analogy will help give us a bit of a new picture. Here's some, some of what I think it may mean or probably will mean for most of us to think about being bartenders. It certainly will in, mean intentionally getting out of our offices more, getting me out of the second floor corner up there. Um, it'll mean spending more time at the pub, whether that's actually a pub or wherever your community gathers and my community gathers. Um, and this won't be easy, I know, because we all, I say we all, I shouldn't say a generalization like that, but many of us work for denominations where the priorities are nickels and noses. And if we're working outside the walls, often they don't count people outside that we connect with. They only count people we can get in on Sunday for worship. And we don't get counted. Those don't get counted. And here's where it really hits the road is our salaries are so often based on the nickels and noses. And it's really hard to make changes in our own behavior in ministry when our salaries are at stake because we're measured by pagan standards rather than kingdom standards. So it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's really hard to make this change. But it does mean maybe more intentionally putting ourselves into our neighborhood. That's where I've been challenged. I've got to start living with my neighbors more, putting more time into my neighbors, the people who live next door to me and across the street and up and down my street. It also means for me looking more intently for those invisible people that I pass all the time and stopping long enough to hear their stories. They have a story to tell. They want to tell it. And this one's really troubling for me because Carolyn and I have talked about this for a long time and we've never done it. But it's, it's probably forming a group of disconnected people to facilitate their discovery of one another's stories. And I'm not quite sure how to do that with my neighbors, but I think that's where I've got ahead. And I think for all of us, it will t probably mean that we must act our way into a new way of thinking. Catch that? Act our way into a new way of thinking just rather than trying to change our minds. But it does mean asking for the Holy Spirit's help and then just jumping in. And for introverts like me, that's tough stuff. But once we've begun to see ourselves in this bartender role, we can begin then to train our people to live as bartenders as well. Since whether we're ordained or not, or whether we've got a special label on us, we're all called to that ministry. And then for me, I'm particularly challenged anew this Lenten season. <clears throat> not just from this latest brain surgery, brain surgery, <laughs> brain research that I discovered last week. That's certainly been challenging for me and it's got my brain going crazy and I've already got a book idea going and I've got all kinds of stuff. But more than that, Lent has, has hit me in the last few days even more intently, I think, because I'm reminded that as the eternal bartender, Jesus set the table and offered the bread and poured the wine at what we now call the Last Supper as a miniature version of what was about to take place on a cosmic scale. Then he moved to the cross. At the cross, this is interesting, he provided, again, a bookend. In the wedding of Cana, who provided the wine? The best stuff, Jesus. At the cross, he again provides the wine and pours out the ultimate wine himself.
at the cross, our stories and God's story can finally begin to connect. That's the story of us. At the cross, the foundation was laid for a new community to begin, a new kingdom on earth that's meant to look a whole lot like the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your life as a model for our lives and ministries. And thank you for your sacrifice, the only and ultimate way our stories can be woven back into your eternal story, that story that was in place before we were even dreamed up. Mold us more and more into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. Amen.